you could be seated. Again, it's good to be with you this morning. Redeemer kids, you're dismissed. So if you're like a first through um, fifth grader, you can head on downstairs with Mr. David today. And the other kids downstairs, they're thankful for, for you and for your families and um, partnering with us and allowing us to be a partner with you and, and seeing your children, whether that's come to saving faith or grow in their uh, following Jesus as their Lord and Savior and making more disciples. And so thankful for that. I know especially like in a church plant and in a smaller church that takes a little bit of initiative on a parent's part because obviously there's bigger churches that have much bigger resources and ability to have kids ministry and all these things. And so I'm really thankful for you and for your families and uh, joining us in our mission to reach this community and the world with the gospel. So thankful for that. As Brandon read our sermon text this morning, it's in Mark chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Mark 13. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, I, would, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, that message. I'll try to recap really quickly because I know sometimes we uh, have guessed or um, some people miss for various reasons may not have caught uh, last week's message. But really, this is kind of a part two. So because uh, really we looked at last week kind of helping us with the interpretive challenges of chapter 13. Uh, as I was saying last week, this is the most, and I'm not the one to say this, just in general, all New Testament scholars and um, uh, pastors, theologians uh, who have worked through the book of Mark realize that Mark chapter 13 is the most difficult to interpret. And it's Jesus talking about end times, but sometimes we can think end times and miss what was we looked at last week is it wasn't just end times he's talking about. He's talking specifically last week as we looked at in the way I was interpreting this passage. And I say I because it is debated on especially verses 14 through 23 on what is Jesus referring to. Uh, is he referring only to the end? Is he only talking about kind of like this, this end times uh, viewpoint? Is he only talking about Christ's second coming and all the tribulation and all the things that will happen in the end of this world? Um, I believe that he is major mostly talking about the destruction of the temple that happened in A.D. 70. That when he's referring to the abomination of desolation, that's a crazy phrase, but it was already partially fulfilled 150 years even before Jesus' coming. When Antioch Epiphanes came on the scene uh, and he came in as this evil uh, uh, heathen, as you would say, for the Jews, and he comes in and he erects an altar to Zeus and on the altar in the Holy of Holies. For the Jew, this is a place that no one goes into except the high priest once a year to offer this atonement for the people, offer this sacrifice and to spread the blood on the mercy seat. And here this man goes in, this general comes in, and he erects an altar to Zeus, and on that altar uh, he sacrifices a pig. I mean, this is an abomination of desolation for the Jews. And this was, this phrase and this wording comes from the book of Daniel. It was the book of Daniel happened hundreds of years. Uh, in the Babylonian exile, he gives this prophecy about this coming abomination of desolation. And so partially that was fulfilled there. The way I'm interpreting it and the way I'm taking it is that it was finally, it was fully um, uh, fulfilled through a, a prophecy about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. 
uh, some of the clues just really quickly from last week. The disciples' specific question is and comes from the beginning of chapter 13 where they're saying, oh, man, look, Jesus, look how beautiful the stones and the, how beautiful the buildings of the temple as they're looking from the Mount of Olives about 200 feet down. So they're on this tall mountain, like 2,700 feet of elevation, and they're looking down on the temple mount, and they're just saying, oh, man, how beautiful it is. And Jesus says, instead of like this, man, this wonderful moment of ecstasy, looking there, like this beautiful view, Jesus says, <laughs> kind of just shoots it down immediately and says, not one stone is going to be left on another. Referring to the destruction of the temple. And they ask, when will these things happen? And then we get Jesus explaining in verses, at the beginning, verses 3 through, uh, through 13, Jesus explaining about various signs and different things. And he's basically saying, these signs are not the sign of the end. They're the sign of the beginning of the end. Uh, they're a sign of things that will happen. And he's warning them of like, man, we better hope that women who are pregnant, that these things will happen, that people will be ready because they need to flee and literally, that's exactly what happened when uh, the, the, the Roman general Titus came in and completely desecrated the temple, burned it to the ground, and they destroyed all of Jerusalem completely to rubbish. Not one stone left on another. And so, but I will say this, though. In saying these things, Jesus is also kind of looking out and past to a future end to the second coming as well, because that's what we're going to look at this morning, verses 24 uh, through 27, and then 32 through 37. I believe 28 through 31 is referring back to uh, the destruction of the temple uh, and the lesson of the fig tree. And then, but that's why I say there's a little bit of a blend. It's almost like, picture it like this. If you've ever been on a, if you've ever been hiking in, in, in higher elevation and climbing and you get onto, and you think that you're going to get to the top. You're seeing the top, you, you're seeing this and you get there and all of a sudden you realize there was another mountain on the other side of that that was miles away that keeps going. It's kind of like in the Himalayas and you think of like Mount Everest. When they get to certain peaks, they think they're at the end and they realize there's other mountains way off in the distance. And this is what Jesus is saying when we look at verse 24 uh, this morning. Look at this. The way we're going to take this this morning in this passage is really to deal with these, what is this ending going to look like? And what is Jesus referring to when he talks about the, um, his second coming, when Jesus comes? And so this morning I've kind of put it in two points, and then there's several subpoints to kind of go along. But if you're taking notes, first we're going to this morning look at the certainty of Jesus' return, of the certainty of Jesus' return. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What we see here is Jesus talking about his coming. This picture of him saying, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So when we talk about the certainty of Jesus, his return, first, notice this, that we know that Jesus is coming in power and glory. What is his coming going to be like? He's coming specifically in power and glory. You see, this is quite different 
than his first coming. We think of his first coming. He's born in poverty. He's born among just a, a simple family, Mary and Joseph. He's born, and here he is, this king of glory, comes, no spectacle, in the quiet of the night. Here he is, he comes and he's born, he comes on, taking on humanity. Here he comes, but there's no coronation, there's no loud shouting. Here it is, we're just told that some shepherds are given an announcement from the angels. Glory to God in the highest. Here comes Jesus, he's born in a town called Bethlehem. Go and see him, and so sure enough they go. But here's just coming to shepherds. He comes, he's meek and mild. There's no flash, there's no pizzazz about it. Even Herod, Herod wants to know, who is this that has been born? He's trying to figure it out. He's asking all these wise men, he's asking people, trying to figure out, where is he? They don't see him. Most people, this would have come completely unnoticed. We just have scripture to tell us what happened. But among the people of the day, they would have no clue Jesus came. But here, notice what it says. Verse 26, and they, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. It won't be something that happens just quietly in the night where no one sees, no one knows except a few people. No, here, they will see the Son of Man coming in, notice this, in clouds with great power and glory. Now, notice that the way that's read, too, notice this, it says that the Son of Man coming in, in clouds of glory with great power and glory. Is that... Is that Ring a bell to you of the Old Testament a little bit. If not, let me take you on a quick journey through the Old Testament. In Genesis, in Genesis, God creates mankind, right? He creates Adam and Eve. They're born, or no, they're, they're created, and here they are, these, these two individuals, and they're walking with God. They have perfect relationship with God. There's nothing in between them and God. They can enjoy his presence. They're allowed in his presence because they're sinless. They're perfect. They're God's creation. We don't know how long, what the length of time that was that they got to walk with God. But here they are. They're walking with God. They get to be with God. They get to talk to him, be alongside him. Here it talks about how God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Here they are, a perfect relationship. But when they sin, we learn that what happened when they chose their own path, when they chose to give in to Satan's lies and they're deceived and they give in to sin, what happens? Immediately, there's separation. They're separated from God. And all of a sudden, God now has, has kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. And all of a sudden, his fullness, his presence, his eminence with them and his being with them and walking with them, now there's distance. There's a brokenness in their relationship no longer do we see God walking with man. So we learn that God withdrew his presence from them before they enjoyed God being with them in perfect peace and relationship. But after we see him casting them out of the garden and his direct presence is with them no more. And I want you to see this. In Genesis chapter 6, I think we forget this when we read our Bibles. In Genesis 6, think about it. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the start of our Bibles. It only took six chapters in verse 5 for, the, for God's word to say this. The Lord saw. So 
Think of this, in the garden, in Genesis 3. So even if we go from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, they're walking with God, they're close with God, and then all of a sudden they've sinned against a holy God, and now God's presence has left them. They're left, in a sense, to themselves. They're a sinful, broken people. Only three more chapters later in our Bibles. I think we forget that. Like, the, the Noah and the flood account happens very early in our Bibles. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 5, listen to what God's Word says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man's or the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6 of your Bibles. Early on, man is left to themselves, a broken, evil mess. But in Exodus, we get a glimpse of God's presence with humanity. He calls a man, Moses, to go, and he sees his people in slavery. They have lived in sin. I mean, we're talking about hundreds, probably even maybe thousands years, thousand or so years of time passing. And here's God's people in slavery in Egypt. And God hears their cries and calls a man named Moses to go to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And sure enough, it takes a lot of convincing, a lot of plagues, if you've heard of them. And all of a sudden, those through those plagues, eventually he says, fine, go, and they leave. And once they leave and get out and across as they part of the sea and all the things that happen, they eventually get to Mount Sinai. And God comes down and meets with um, Moses on the mountain. He comes kind of in like this cloud. And here he speaks, and it's like almost like the storm cloud. And here he is, he's speaking and talking with God. And when he instructs them to make a tabernacle, to, to be with his people again, I want to be with you. I want to be your God. I'm going to meet with you. What does it look like? There's a, a kind of a churchy theological word. It's called the Shekinah glory. It's the glory cloud. This picture of God's presence as a cloud among his people, this Shekinah glory, and it would lead them as this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in his presence in the Holy of Holies, he would be with them in this picture of this cloud. And here in verse 26, Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, this second time, he's coming, notice this, not meek and mild, but in power and glory. It's as if his glory is coming down to earth and finally and fully to be with his people forever and ever and ever. I will be with you for all of eternity. He's coming in power. He's coming in justice to right every wrong. He comes to fully redeem. He is coming in judgment and salvation. So not only do we know that Jesus is coming in power and glory, we also know that God is, the God is the only one who knows when Christ will return. Again, as we look through this book and this, this chapter as has already been read, look on uh, verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know. You do not know. What do we not know? Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. You don't know when these things are going to happen. When will it happen? We don't know. Only the Father, look at verse 32, but, coming that, coming that, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. Now, that, if you're kind of, a little astute, and you're going like, well, okay, if, 
Eric, I've heard you say, and I've read it in my Bible, that Jesus is God, that the Father is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. They're one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If Jesus is God, then how can he not know when he will return? Now, I don't know how you've heard this before, but I believe, as followers of Jesus, we believe in the deity of Jesus. I believe in the deity of Jesus. This is a confession of the faith, that the God, the Son, is fully God. In Colossians 1, unbelievable passage to help you see who is Jesus. We're told by Paul in Colossians 1, in him, talking about Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is in Christ. That God's fullness, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But if he's fully God, how can he not know something? How can he not know when? And I believe like Daniel Aiken and many, many before him and after him have said. And I want to read this quote to you. I think he says it really well. He said it really well. That's why I'm going to read it. <laughs> he says, this statement makes no sense apart from the incarnation. In taking on a hum human nature and entering into the time-space reality, the Son of God did not surrender his deity. He didn't say, I'm not going to be a deity anymore. I'm going to come and be a human. He didn't surrender his deity, but he did lay aside his glory. And we see this, right? Because they can you can't see God and live. And even when Jesus revealed himself, we looked at this in the transfiguration, he was re revealing, in a sense, more of his deity than, 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 than more of his humanity. They got to see him a little more glorified in that moment. And that's when you remember when Peter's like, let's just stay here. And so what he's saying is he did lay aside his glory. We can look at John 17, 5. Philippians 2 is a great passage on on this as well. But he says, in continuing on in this quote, he says, in doing so, our Lord for a time relinquished the free exercise of his divine attributes, such as omniscience. He's relinquishing some aspects of his deity, uh, for instance, like omniscience. And so in the mystery and beauty of the incarnation, the all-knowing sovereign son could temporarily lay aside or suspend the free exercise of his God attributes, so that he might live an authentic human life in submission to his Father in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to hear is this, is Jesus is God. So while he was on earth, there were aspects because of his humanity, him being God and him taking on human form, there's aspects of his deity that get veiled in that way. And so in some ways, that's why here he can say, only the Father knows the coming of of the Son. But it's not like Jesus is now in heaven and he's like, man, I wonder if today's the day. I'm not sure. Should I be coming back today or not? Is the Father going to ask me to go this time or not? No, he's God. He knows today. I believe it wholeheartedly. Because I believe if not, we start missing on who Jesus is in his deity, in his omniscience. I just believe while he was on earth, he did not know that day. But again, I don't think Jesus is going, man, I wonder if God the Father is going to ask me to go back today. I better be ready. Oh, he's God. He knows. And he's going to come. And he's going to come specifically, and I want you to see this. He's going to come to gather his people. He's going to come to gather his people. He's coming for his own. Notice what he says going back again. I think I messed up the order of my notes for you, Will. Sorry, I'm not sure if it did or didn't. But notice this. 
He will send out, verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He's coming to get his people. He's coming back for them. You know, for those who have placed their trust in him, he comes to bring them home into his presence. These people, notice this, are from, as it describes, the four corners of the earth. This does not mean we believe in a flat earth, if you're wondering, if we're like some of those flat earth people. Um, but as this described, kind of like trying to cover the whole thing from every four, all four corners of the earth, as if there are corners. But notice what this means, though, in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9, it says, after this, as we get a picture of heaven, it says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every, listen to this, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This picture of heaven is every tribe, tongue, nation, people of all walks of life, poor, rich, destitute, no matter who you are from generation past to generation future, from every tribe, different languages, they're gathered together. God has brought his people home, those who have placed their trust in him, and they're gathered together singing the praises of the Lamb. This is remarkable. At Calvary Church, where I served for several years before moving here to Plant Redeemer Community Church, one of the neat things was we had many different nationalities there. And every once in a while they would do some of the, their songs and they would sing them um, all in the various languages. They would have, we had, we had Russian, Russian, Ukrainian, um, Chinese, we had Spanish, we had various languages, and they would do this, this, I can't even remember the name of the song right now, but they would sing these, a few different songs they did over the years, and they'd have them singing in all these different languages, and it was just this picture, and you're like, oh man, God is bringing people from all over, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, people group is gathered together. Jesus is coming for his own. I say all of this to say there is this certainty that Jesus is going to return. But I believe as we look here, and this is the part that's been heavy on my heart. I, I, well, I mean, let me say this really quickly. Verses 28 through 31. Uh, I looked at those last week. That's why we're not really looking at them this morning. So if you're wondering why I'm kind of skipping over that, you can listen to last week. And I briefly covered uh, last week um, in connecting that to the, the destruction of the temple. Um, specifically, uh, really difficult to verse, just to point this out in case you never go back and listen to it, most likely. Verse, verse 30, though, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, if you were to read this as the second coming talk and only the second coming, you'd be like, well, Jesus is a liar. Jesus wasn't right. He predicted wrong. He messed up. His prophecy was not fulfilled. That generation did die. Jesus hasn't returned yet. His second coming hasn't happened yet. And so if he's saying this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, then he must be also referring to, and specifically in this passage, in this example of the fig tree, to their original question about the destruction of the temple. When are these things going to happen? And sure enough, in their generation, those things did happen. The temple was destroyed. 
But I believe that temple being destroyed was, a, was kind of a, a foretaste and kind of a looking ahead to the reality of the second coming and the tribulation to come. So kind of with that said, just kind of recapping from last week, let's look finally at this, the necessity of watchfulness. Jesus is coming back. So what does that mean for us? What should we do? The necessity of watchfulness. Look at these as Jesus ends this, the longest teaching in the book of Mark, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper uh, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. He's talking to his disciples and now he's saying, for everyone who will ever read this, stay awake. Notice these in verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Uh, at the end of verse 34, stay awake. At the beginning of verse 35, therefore, stay awake. And then in verse 37, to everyone, stay awake. What are we supposed to stay awake for? And what does staying awake mean? What does watchfulness mean? What does it mean that we're to, to be careful, pay attention, we're to watch for? I believe many people have taken the idea of watching wrongly. They've looked for signs and they're saying, all right, oh, maybe, maybe now Jesus is going to come. Have you heard what happened in the Middle East recently? Jesus is coming. Have you, have you, did you hear about the earthquake the other day? It was a really bad one. And then, I mean, and then there was another one and another one in the world. Jesus is coming back. And we can focus on the signs and then try to predict as many people have done. But did you not hear earlier what Jesus said? No one knows the time. But yet somehow people write books on this. People, people, like, I, mean, just, I mean, even as re very recently, the past decade, people claiming Jesus, the end is coming. The end of the world is coming. It's coming in 2017. It's coming in 2011. It's coming in 1988. It's coming, the Jehovah's Witnesses, many times. I mean, probably five to ten times have predict, tried to predict the date. Each time failed. I don't even know how they can continue to exist with these such lies. We're told in the Bible, no one knows. Why? Why does no one know? Why is that withheld from the disciples? Why is that held from all followers of Jesus? Why not know, like, hey, he's going to come in? I think it's this important principle, stay awake, to ever be alert. You ever been on a trip, tired? Yeah, this is one of the worst, I, I don't know about you, you're driving, and it is like one of the worst feelings in the world, is when you're super tired. It might have happened to you this morning, you know, you're trying to stay awake in a sermon, you're like, Eric's going to look me in the eyes, and I'm so tired. And you're like, and it's like killing you, you're like, I'm so tired. Um, I know, like for me, man, driving, I remember even just the commute, I'm so thankful to, to work from home now. Like the commute, I remember when I had like a 45-minute commute, it was fine in the morning, it's like kind of enjoyable, it's like, ah, nice, kind of get you ready for the day, get your thoughts, thinking through, catch up on things. But then that ride home, man, whew, you're like just, you're like ever fighting your eyes, you know, you're like, just stay awake, and you're like slapping your, oh, sorry, slapping yourself, slapping yourself, stay awake, I, I woke you up, you know. 
slapping yourself. I remember I'm like slapping my hand. I'm like rolling windows down. I'm like, I'm hitting myself. You're like, you're blaring music. I'm trying to find something that will catch my attention. And you're just trying to fight it. You ever felt that before? This is the intensity with which Jesus is saying this. I mean, notice the intensity. Be on guard. Keep awake. Again, keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. I mean, this, he's saying it over and again. Wake up. In our time of prayer this morning, uh, one of the benefits of time of prayer is I, I share a little bit of what I'm talking about. And so then I can get some good still sermon material left from even their comments. And so I'm like, oh, that's a good one. I'll say that today too, you know. But as, the, as we're praying for today and praying for you and praying for, for me in the, in the service and as we look at God's word, um, someone this morning was just pointing out that here's the idea to stay awake. The reality is, is I think many are not even awake. They're asleep. They've been lulled to sleep. We've been lulled to sleep by our lives. You know, I was praying this morning for some people who are, who are struggling. People who are going through hardship. When you're going through intense suffering and maybe persecution, or you're going through various serious disease, and you get a cancer diagnosis, and you're told your life is not much longer left to live, what do you think you start to think about? start to think about his return. You think about heaven a little bit more. But think about many of us, many of you, I mean, a lot of young families starting out in your lives, and you, you think, the, the, my life is in front of me, and your life maybe is probably pretty good. Haven't had too much death that maybe you've potentially experienced through loved ones. Your life's good. Your bank account's okay. You're settled in. Life's good. I'm raising some children. God's blessed me with the home. We're saving up for maybe another home or a new home or or first home, and or you're just you know you're th- you're single and you're you're thinking about eventually, man. I'd love to to be married one day and have children. And so you're thinking about your life and the and you're thinking about the comforts and these things. But think about what that does to us, the comforts of this world. We say and we'll sing it today, the, the Star Spangled Banner. Those someone will probably sing, "God bless America," and we say, "God bless America." Well, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say, "God bless America"? Does that mean, like, give us success? Give us more freedoms? What if the freedoms and the blessing that we think that we're asking for is completely lulling us to sleep? And we're like, man, I don't really necessarily care if Jesus comes back anytime soon. My life's pretty good. I got it pretty good going on right now. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, stay awake. Don't be lulled to sleep by the deceitfulness of this world. Don't be lulled into all the comforts of this world. You see, you know the people who are watchful and ready and longing for his return, it's people who are suffering. People like in um, in the first century in Palestine. These people are experiencing extreme persecution. The leading up to the destruction of the temple was, I mean, complete devastation. The spread of the gospel happened because of it, because it led them to leave and run. And they followed the teaching of Jesus. Pray that these things won't happen, but run, flee. And they did. And they spread. And so that's why Peter in writing is, is, is courage and trying to encourage them because they're suffering. But many of us aren't suffering. And so easily we can just fall asleep. There's a warning because of that. 
Do you notice what he says? It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. It reminds me of when I played baseball uh, in college, in high school probably more so than college, but both coaches were in that way. But, like, you know, the coaches around, everybody's working hard. I mean, he was pretty tough on us, and so he'd have us running pole to poles and all these things that we did not want to do. And it's like, all right, can we just play games? Like, like who cares? Can we just have batting practice all the time and all this stuff? And, and so whenever he would try to give us instructions, he's like, hey, okay, you do this, you guys are doing that, but he need to leave. And so he's leaving, he's away, and you know what we'd do? We'd goof off every time. <laughs> goof off, and then we'd hear his truck coming. We hear it like his little gator. Here he comes on his gator, and he's like, oh, everybody, all right, back to your positions, right? Totally. But like one time, though, he showed up, and he didn't, it was like he was, did it on purpose or something. I mean, he caught us, and we got in so much trouble because uh, we, were, we were asleep at the wheel. He told us to do certain things. He had told us, he'd given us a command. He told us what to do. He'd given us a mission for that day to prepare for, and he's got to go do some other things, and he'll be back. And we took that as an opportunity to be lax. How about us? What about mission? I think the importance for us to keep awake is it keeps us on mission. You see, Jesus has left us. He he leaves earth and he tells the disciples and he tells all those who will follow him, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus commands us. He's given us a mission. And most of us are completely asleep. Can you imagine Jesus returns? What if he returns and he looks at the church? The church has been asleep at the wheel for decades upon decades. Man, may we not be true. We need to keep awake. Stay alert. Be watchful. Stay on mission. Another aspect of this necessity of watchfulness is for our own personal holiness. Can you imagine Jesus coming back? And in that moment, you're living in sin. You ever thought through that before? You probably have, I bet. If you're you've heard of his coming you're like what's the Lord gonna when he comes back what are we gonna be doing have we just been living our lives the way we want to live them and doing what we want to do and and enjoying all these things and here he comes you see this should lead us to pursue holiness that we don't know when he's gonna is he going to be like my coach catching us goofing off, playing around, having a good old time, not doing what he said? Or will he come and see us just like, and I want you to turn there as I end. Matthew, the parallel account of this, gives us several other parables in Jesus' teaching on his coming. And in Matthew 24 and 25, that's why you can see it's much longer. Um, than our passage in Mark. It says in verse 50, 
of Matthew 24, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him, in, put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this is a warning for those who are far from God. These are a warning for those who are lost, the people who do not know Jesus. Because he's going to come not just for his own, but he's also coming in ju- judgment where justice and righteousness dwell. The righteous with Christ, because of Christ, and only because of him. And those who haven't placed their trust in Jesus to everlasting punishment. It's a warning. That's why he gives in, 25, in chapter 25 the parable of the ten virgins. Think of this. This is a warning to all people who maybe claim to be followers of Jesus but really aren't. And he says, uh, they, they became busy. I'm not going to read the whole parable for time. But verse 11, it says, Afterward the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. They thought they had more time. They were not prepared. And when the groom, the bridegroom came, they were left out. He says, watch, therefore, you know neither. the." And then there's the parable of the talents. I think sometimes we look at this and we only kind of isolate this parable, but I want us to see that parable in light of what he's talking about with the coming of the Son of Man. Because in the parable of the talents, he says it's like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. He gave some five talents, another two, and another one. And what we find out as you read that parable is some invested and they used the resources that the master had given them to increase that, what was given to him. But then one kind of took what was given to him and just hid it, didn't do, meaning he didn't do anything with what he had been blessed with. Now, I want you to see this beyond money. I want you to see this about even the entrustment of the gospel, even seeing it as God giving you, yes, talents, abilities, things like that. But think about what you do with your life. What are you living for? What's your purpose? Why do you exist? Why do you go to work every day? Why do you do what you do? Why do we, why do we go about the lives that we have? What are we doing with our time, with our resources, with the relationships we're able to build? Where you live, how are you using that and utilizing where God has placed you in life with friendships and relationships, a part of different groups of people and various things at work and in your neighborhoods. What we find with the parable of the talents is people who've been given something but did nothing with that time. And here's the time that we've been given on earth. We don't know how long that will be, whether it's death or his return. We need to stay awake and live for him. We seek holiness. We live on mission. And we live for him. To be ready for Christ's return, I like what Wayne Grudem said on this. He said, to be ready for Christ's return is to be faithfully obeying him in the present, actively engaged in whatever work he has called us to. We must stay awake because Christ is coming back. And we don't know when. But he will. He promises to come. He comes to judge and to call his own to himself for all of eternity where we get to enjoy him forever and ever. Let's go to him now and ask for his help. As we, that we wouldn't, let's ask God this morning, will you pray with me? God, help me. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
Ask him to help you to stay awake, to be always alert, to be living in light of eternity, living in light of his return. We don't know when, what that hour looks like. The Bible tells us that a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day to Christ. So it could be another thousand years, it could be another 10,000 years, it could be before the kickoff of Super Bowl Sunday tonight. We don't know when. But we know he will come. Are we going to be ready? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. God, I thank you so much that you have given us warnings. You give us insight into things to come. You give us something to live for, hope. For those who are suffering, God, I, I thank you for the hope that that brings. That we're called to endure as we looked at last week to endure suffering, to endure the hardships of life because you are going to come to redeem and restore and make all things new. And we long for your coming in power and glory. We long to see that day. May we live like Martin Luther said. I have two dates on my calendar, today and that day. God, may we live each day in light of that day, your coming. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.